Welcome to the History of Networking, where we drag all of the skeletons out of the wiring closet and ponder the ghosts of Protocol's past. Well, hello, Donald. How's it going? You're stuck in the kitchen today. I don't know about that. <laughs> Donald's in the kitchen today. And today we have joining us uh, Rusba, and I think Rusba's on the West Coast, but where are you actually? Am I correct, or are you? No, I actually operate from East Coast of the United States. So I'm presently in uh, Boxport, Massachusetts, um, uh, and um, I'm speaking with you from a nice, sunny, beautiful autumn day that uh, the color of the trees are changing. Yes, the color of the trees in, in the Northeast is, is really, really awesome this time of year. So that's great. I have friends who live in Maine, um, and they tell me all about it. So today we're talking about cable, cable modems, cable, how we got to cable stuff. Oh, okay. So we're talking about cable and cable modems and how cable came about. So let's just begin at the very beginning, because you seem to have been there at the very beginning. Me, I was just building, starting to learn to build networks in the 80s. Yeah, so um, just in the background, um, if you remember in the early 1980s uh, was the evolution or revolution of local area networking, known as the LAN and wide area networking. They were growing up and the companies and um, were trying to connect the computer with it for the employees within the facility in the building called workplace. So local area networking was uh, growing within the car, within the companies in around our nations as an innovation part of the America. And we were leading that. Uh, there was a fight between this token ring technology going to win or Ethernet going to win. And, and that was the decades for local area networking. Parallel to that, we had the wide area networking that was trying to connect the buildings and, and the facilities together around the globe. <clears throat> and this was going to be an upgrade to the old-fashioned X.25 packet networking, if you will, that used to have uh, been deployed in 1970s. So the wide area networking started getting elected. And then uh, the company like U.S. Robotics and others came in the market and tried to have what we call the old-fashioned dial-up, which was BIPs and the BURPs for connecting computers from home to the corporation. That was the mid-'80s, early-'80s, uh, where the network was kind of sort of growing itself. Uh, while this was going happening, uh, what we had, the factories, like General Motors and the Ford and other big factories says, well, what about us? Uh, we are bigger than local area networking, um, and the land couldn't quite work in there because of the distance of the facilities. And, and they wanted the faster speed, so the wider area networking wasn't good for them. So another element was growing that called MAN, M-A-N, that stands for Metropolitan Area Networking, if you will. And the factories started using broadband technology, using the coax to be able to connect their um, robotics and uh, connect their factory and they connect the facilities. And, and while the factories were doing that, uh, U.S. government, Vandenberg Air Force Base, Rock Island Arsenal, all the others were trying to connect also the campuses together. The universities wanted to connect their campuses together and, um, and the buildings. And these are all bigger than the distance that local networking could work and they wanted the speed of the land. So the broadband started uh, having a lag in the 
facility networking uh, from the government side to the factory side to the university side and um, and started uh, connecting the building together but actually the challenge was the broadband or known as a coax at that time was not quite reliable because the technology was 100% RF and RF was a magic to majority of the engineers in the sense of getting data through it. Some people never thought you could put data over the cables and RF uh, technologies. Some people thought you could. So then uh, early 80s uh, was a phenomenon where there were companies uh, all the way from Xerox to IBM um, um, to Chipcoms uh, um, and uh, a company called Apple Tech and uh, Fairchild and a bunch of other companies have started bringing broadband of uh, modems and broadband connectivity uh, to give the look-alike LAN networking structures. Uh, I joined a company called Apple Tech in 1987. They had about 64 different products, if you will, that was helping one way or the other, but uh, because they were a startup and because they didn't do a good job, uh, they really didn't, couldn't get the, all the technology works. I eliminated 63 out of the 64 products and I stood up with one of and I stood up with one of them, which called I'll call it LAN City, which was the name of the company I formed. LAN City meant you take the local area network in, taking it citywide, and we were using the QPSK technology, quadrature phase shift key technology on the modulation side, and we were able to give the same quality of the LAN, 10 megabits per second, to the Vanderburg Air Force Base, Rock Island Arsenals, University of Emory, uh, and school districts in Indianapolis, and the rest of the name is history, actually, to connect those facilities with the same quality of the land. So by 87, 88, those facilities could have exact the same connectivity that Ethernet and Token Ring were bringing and providing within the building. We were able to bring it within the city, and that was the birth of a company called Lan City, L-A-N-C-I-T-Y. So I'm just going to pause here to make sure uh, the big picture of how Lan and the van and the man came together to create the first uh, broadband tool network. And then uh, I can talk about the challenges that uh, broadband connectivity had and what are the obstacles we had to overcome. Um, as far as the cable modem broadband connectivity goes to bring the price of a $20,000 cable modem down to a 30 US dollar. It's interesting because like you said, in the earlier days, older days, there was a huge difference between WAN and LAN. And a lot of it was around um, just this bandwidth speed. And when you were transferring between the two, you had a lot of issues around making sure that you had enough buffer space. Um, so a lot of the routers had big buffers and you had all these things around um, buffer bloat and everything else. And so what you're describing is essentially the beginning of bringing what would have been at that time considered land speeds into the wide area network. Um, now this is still Metro. This is still, this is not um, what we would classify as Metro or last mile today, right? This is not. Well, well, actually that's a very good, that's a very good point because what, uh, what the challenge was, uh, what's the distance I can be able to do that? That was one of the um, elements of the innovation we had to do prior to that. You could only go a few miles, but uh, we created a, Mac uh, technology, media access layer technology, and we were able to get our uh, Mac layer technology to actually work 
and overcome the speed of light, overcome the delays that are uh, inherent in the cable infrastructures, um, and be able to create a 200-mile uh, distance where we could actually connect the uh, elements of the buildings or the networks within 200 miles uh, um, of the, each other. So, so our land at that time known as the Lane City was capable to do that. And all we have to do, we need to make sure not also the MAC layer protocol works, not also propagation delays compensated by creating the right FIR filters and all the other stuff that goes in the technology, but also make sure that provisioning and network stuff works very well. Let me give you an example. You know, for example, uh, if you look at the university facilities, uh, they have 20, 30, 40 buildings. The buildings are maybe five, seven, eight miles apart from each other in the campus. If you look at Vandenberg Air Force Base, it's a massive facility, 30 miles apart uh, buildings are from each other. So in order to be able to connect uh, uh, low carrier networking of those uh, together at the same speed, we were able to create for them what we call an Ethernet bridge at the time, which means that the Ethernet LAN would come to our box on one side, and the other side was RF technology modulating QPSK and carrying that data encrypted to the next building and the next building and next building without uh, sacrificing the performance or bit error rate or the noise. But because the broadband was built up the coax, coax was analog technology, you had to make sure the cable infrastructure is a two-way. You had to make sure that cable infrastructure, which was a two-way, can work in the summertime and wintertime and doesn't drift. You had to make sure the upstream and downstream channel that you need, they're all equalized and working together without um, too much of a group delays. So those were some of the technical challenges that we had to build in our, um, if you will, uh, Ethernet bridge, which later we call cable modem, to compensate and analyze for all those elements. Let me just go fast forward for you to put in perspective, and then we can go back. So in order to get a cable TV system um, work two-way, you had to make sure you had amplifiers, and you had to make sure two-way amplifier works, and you had to make sure amplifier had uh, game control, AGC controls that uh, handles uh, the drift of the level of the signals. You have to make sure the ingress noise are managed. Uh, so it, I used to call it plug and pray because it will take uh, praying for a couple of days to get all that stuff cleaned up. Uh, we used to be able to install maybe one cable modem a day uh, by cleaning all the amplifiers, all the connections, all the ingress, all the other stuff. And uh, from there, we have now come where the customer can install a cable modem remotely by themselves, and the tens of a million can be deployed at the same time. So we have come a long way through the technology and provisioning and automation to be able to do that. But back in 1987-88 timeframe, and that was the manual work that we had to make sure the um, cable modem works and cable modem can work on the two-way cable system and be able to have a reliable network with a good fit error rate worthy of the local area networking. 
So these errors and stuff that you're talking about, they're from the amplifiers in the circuit and probably near and far and crosstalk and things like that, right? And this is all coax. So in theory, coax should have less next and, and uh, near and far and crosstalk stuff. But the amplifiers, I mean, what, why were there so many amplifiers? What were they doing? And like, why were they such a problem in these circuits? Very good question. So in early um, 90s and late 80s, uh, two evolution was happening in a parallel while the worldwide uh, um, uh, web browsing and all the other guys been invented. The cable infrastructure used to be, the way it was invented, you know, back in 1940, you had antenna on top of the mountains and the coax bring the signals down to the town and city and you had 40, 42, 44 amplifiers every so uh, mile distance that magnify the signal. And each one of those amplifiers while it will help the signals to get, they will add noise to the system. Uh, early 90s and late 80s, uh, HFC network was being born, a hybrid fiber coax. So the cable industry was trying to use and mobilize, bring the fibers and eliminate as many uh, amplifiers you could possibly uh, eliminate uh, in order to have a better signal quality. So that was going in parallel, number one. Number two, the coax uh, is the cable infrastructures that, you know, as you put it on the poles, uh, sharing with the electric poles and, and carry the signal on the TV signal that we are familiar with, which was used to deliver. Some of these cables uh, over the winter time and summertime stretch and, um, and the connection becomes to be loose and that becomes to be an ingress point. Give you an example. We had our friend in Cablevision in in um, in a Long Island, New York, uh, telling us that uh, between four o'clock to six o'clock at nighttime, the network doesn't work. I said, "Well, that's impossible. How could that be the case?" I had a good uh, friend of mine, Bill Hildebrand, who was working there. So, to make the story short for you, what happened? We discovered that the truck drivers were going by between four to six in a major road in the land in the Long Island and, um, and because the coax were stretched on the poles when they stop on the traffic lights and they have their five watt TVs working, that uh, energy was getting to the cable infrastructures and was causing problems. We also similarly heard from our friend Adelphia in the southern part of New York that the network didn't work on Saturday and Sunday and the same thing was happening with the hunters who go in there to hunt deers and bears in the winter times, uh, they, they claim the network doesn't. So those were, you know, real life problems that we, we had that we were able to resolve and figure out what happened. That's what actually gave the first network management system, NMS, where we could actually pull every cable modem, pull every unit and figure out what the bit error rate looks like, what the signal looks like at what location, and be able to actually have the first topology of intelligent network or a city without even having to go to every unit to figure out. So the noise that you're referring to was basically is the fundamental issue that analog solution will have and, and a physical cable will have. And over the years, those problems have been resolved and gone and now cable can actually provide technology up to multi-gigabyte uh, network over the same modulation technology of 256 QAM um, to the house and, and under business services that 
commercial companies like uh, Comcast and Cox and and um, Time Warner's and other providers. So basically, what these what these amplifiers are doing is they're trying to amplify the signal, but they also amplify the noise, right? And that's part of the problem. There's noise, natural noise on the line, just because of capacitive inductance and stuff like that running between the wires between the two two sides of the coax, and they are just they just you know that's what happens and so you're just amplifying everything so you're trying to clean up those amps and get the noise down to the level and stuff like that correct very nicely very nicely put yes yeah all right so once you start getting that done now that's the downstream side right now what about the upstream side of things yeah so the cable industry as you know uh, had um, the signal from 42 megahertz up to uh UHF um, are um, forward channel and from uh, 6 megahertz to 42 megahertz uh, up, upstream channel. So the upstream channel was never been used before. Uh, the data was one of the first early pushing factors uh, to be able to utilize that. And most amplifiers were not two-way. So first you had to make the amplifier two-way. Secondly, you had to clean up the normal standard um, group delay that exists on the return channel to make sure uh, you could survive. So originally we were only working in the middle of the upstream band, uh, but then we were able to build the raw, right star filters in the cable model technology to compensate for all the rolling up and rolling down and the group delays that upstream had. And we optimized the solution of the cable model from $20,000 to $5,000 to $500 to a 30 US dollars by using um, um, right soft filters by using right digital signal processing by using right FIR filters by using right algorithms all of the stuff come together over four generations from 1987 to uh, 2002 was able to create a very robust solution where the cable modem can compensate and work in hostile environments uh, on the return channels and the forward channels uh, with some of those noise and also have some noise cancellation and noise immunity. And now today, is that's really um, become to be a superb network with any, without any problems because uh, ecosystem is all designed to uh, work in a harmony with each other now. We're still back in the 80s, right? We're still thinking back in the 80s. So describe to us what's going on in the, describe to us what's going on in the 80s, moving forward from the 80s and how the industry starts to change a little bit. Because I know we've talked to some folks about Doxis before, but uh, maybe it would be good to, to work back, you know, even before Doxis a little bit and describe the situation. Very good. So by, by end of 1980s, uh, let's say we had islands of the connectivities. We had uh, universities now were connected, hospitals were connected, we had the school districts connected, um, we had a variety of the metropolitan area networking working at the speed of the land. By end of 1980s, Ethernet was more dominant than token ring, if you will. Ethernet was uh, going forward network, network uh, standards, uh, token ring was right behind it. Uh, while IBM was supporting it, but Ethernet was becoming to be de facto networking standards for the corporation uh, as far as the cost goes, as far as operation goes. So our technology, we were a small company, Land City was a small company. We decided uh, very quickly by end of 80s that in order to be successful, we need to adopt and adjust to the local area networking standards. So we accepted Ethernet as a de facto standard we accepted the TCPIP and the network management as a de facto standard, created an automated provisioning system 
which was based on an open system. And uh, we knew that our old modems that we had, which was made of eight um, multibus 16-inch uh, by 16-inch board, which weighed about 150 pounds, could not really be shrinked. We had to redesign the whole philosophy. So we came up with the siliconization and then we developed our first silicon, if you will. At that time, the silicon used to be still designed old-fashioned schematic capturing, but we worked with Digital Equipment Corporation, you might recall, known as a DEC. Uh, they, had a, they were developing the Alpha chip at the 64-bit uh, processor. We worked with them and we uh, learned on the uh, tools like a synopsis and Verilog, and we created the first ever uh, silicon with a million plus gates using the simulation tool that is schematic capturing, where we that end up to our next generation of technology. So. Uh, so what happened by early 90s, we had um, uh, digital signal processing, we had um, um, uh, RF technology that was more robust, and uh, all alignments uh, on the capacitors and inductor that used to be done by hand, it was all done through digital signal processing. And uh, we were um, actually, as a land city, we had about 90% um, of the market shares between the cable operator because our product was a plug and play now working automatically where all the other technology were not. Um, and um, we were growing very rapidly um, in, in the deploying and installing uh, for different cable operators. We had 400 plus cable companies by uh, between 1990s and 1994 around the globe that they were using our technology all the way from Toyota City in Japan to Sydney, Australia, to Vienna, you name it, the only two places I didn't have cable modem was the North Pole and the South Pole. Short of that, we had cable modem operating in all the area. And at that time, we worked with the cable industry hand in hand, which they were our partners to be able to expand and grow the cable modem to become the personal devices. But it was only around 1994 when the World Wide Web was taken off. And most people will say, what the hell do I want to have 10 megabits to the home for? Why do I want to have that much of speed on upstream for? We were symmetrical solution, 10 megabits both way to bring the technology, but there was no application, no services really that people could utilize. But we were up to speed and we were doing pretty good job and, and universities were blessing it. Uh, government was blessing it. Um, hospitals uh, and the facilities were blessing it. Even downtown Boston, where Digital Equipment Corporation used to have of uh, Queen Elizabeth um, coming to the uh, bay and the harbors uh, for the annual deck world. We connected the entire city with the different kiosks that nobody even know what kiosk was at the time. People be able to connect and get information of you know, what they get in the palm of their hand through their mobile phone, you know, and so on. So from 1980 to 1990, we went from uh, old generation or first generation of cable modem, which was all manual, all controlled by the factories and you had to align the amplifiers in the street to do that, to have a product that was a plug and play and ready to go and works very well. So by 1996, uh, organization in the world known as a cable lab, which is in the Colorado, uh, Denver area, uh, was assigned by the MSO. MSO is a stand for multiple system operator cable industry. They wanted to get the standardization up and running and to make sure that all the operator could buy the modem that is uh, exchangeable between them. And that was the early stage of the life of the burst of the DOCSIS, 
Uh, by that time, 1996, I sold my company land city to Bay Network. I know you worked with Juniper before, so you might not like to hear the word Bay Networks and the Belfley and synopsis. <laughs> but it's really funny because I worked on Bay Networks when I was in the U.S. Air Force and on Bay Networks devices, yeah, that slid into Cabletron boxes. And you might remember they made a card for a long time that was a router that slid into a Cabletron box. And I also encountered Bay Networks in the U.S. Navy uh, many, many times dealing with the U.S. Navy uh, uh, network. So, yeah. I sold the company in 1996 because the operator told me, Ruth Bay, we like your product. We love your cable modem. You're a small company. And we need to work with a big company. So I had no choice to maintain my customer to sell the company, which we did. Then I joined the cable lab as an advisor to help them and formulate the um, standardization based on proven technology that Land City had and Motorola and others. So for between 1996 and 1999, I worked with literally about 500 different vendors and the cable labs, and uh, we created and open a standard. Uh, we put our technology there for free and the uh, cable industry for the first time in the history of the cable industry since 1940 had a standard which was free and no royalties. And that was able to reduce the cost of the modem further down. And um, on March 1999, we certified the first uh, products um, after seven wave of the interoperability and certifications to be the standard DOCSIS, known as the DOCSIS 1.0 was born in March 1999, and at that time, the product was a sub $100. And the technology grew from Duxus 1.0 further between 1999 until today to Duxus 3.0, which has a more speed from um, 10 megabits for having the channel bounding to go to 100 megabits to gigabits, as well as uh, the cost coming down to a 30 US dollars. And um, the rest is really history. It's just a question of the production and volumes and all the others. Uh, what would you consider your biggest challenge in, in rolling out cable modems? Well, there was five fundamental challenges. Number one, could we convert the cable industry from one-way to two-way? Number two, could our Mac layer protocol works and go long distance and be able to be reliable that doesn't drop packet? Number three, could the QPSK and the 64 QAM could actually be designed and maintained over the temperatures and over the range of the variety of the environment. Number four, could you create a network management solution that actually can pull and measure the bit error rates and the performance of this modem that you don't have to deploy truck because every truck will was expensive. Last not least, can you be able to get the cable modem that we bring into all these elements to be a global standard that everybody would speak the same language. That's why we put our patent and technology for free for everybody who use and build on that. Those five uh, macro altogether was translated to about 450, 460 different known technical issue, which I'm sure you guys are from the router and the bridges uh, family, you can respect that. We had to work a lot of uh, these issues and make all that integrity of the data networking to works while being modulated and transmitted over the combination of the coax and hybrid fiber coax and all the elements. So it was really fun. And the only fun in there was all the engineers globally were working together to solve this problem because everybody knew by solving that, they would get a piece of the segment of the market depending where they are and who they are. So it was really good collaboration. 
among the engineers, among cable operators, among the silicon providers. And I, don't, I believe we lost that spirit right now. If you look at 5G, for example, we don't really get that type of progress. I was leading that group of the engineers and, and we created a very good, nice ecosystem, if you will. I, I can actually relate that to this uh, pandemic we are facing right now. You know, we build a global process, a global communication, talk to the engineers, talk with data. We were gathering data. We were figuring it out, what was happening, and uh, open environments between the developers and, uh, and do that. I wish the pandemic guys for the virus. Uh, um, uh, identity and, uh, and the vaccine they're creating, they can do the similar type of uh, information exchange and really get the ball going. Uh, cable industry never in the entire life, 1940 until now, has ever had the standard than Doxis and also never had a free um, IPR than Doxis. So we really did a good job to really make our technology available free to the world. So why was Doxis standardized? Uh- is it because the companies involved saw the importance of growing the market or was it more to save money for themselves? It's really three elements. Number one, operator wanted to make sure that they could exchange the cable modem technology because they, remember there used to be 400 cable operators and now you maybe have a dozen of them, right? So as they buy each other's and merge, they wanted to make sure that modem technology works and they don't have to uh, give inconvenience to the customer. So that was one reason. The second reason was the cost. Because uh, how would you bring the $500 cost of the cable modem to the $30? It has to be really global standard, global silicon that bring the price down just like an Ethernet. That's the second reason. The third reason was that uh, we were trying to build this ubiquitous, um, you know, billion plus users. Uh, we used to have a cluster, a small cluster in the buildings of the people, but um, we never had over a long city, long state, long country everybody connected and working with as many people as we did. So the standard was really the name of the game. So the Doxis standard was born to solve those three points. So, so what would you do differently looking back? Really nothing, to be frank with you. The only thing I would have done differently, um, as I told you, I put our technology for free for industry to use. And, um, and that was great, was noble, brought the price. I wish we would have put a dollars per modem go to a research facilities. And for 4 billion modems not sold, that would be $4 billion. That research would be used to connect the 30 million Americans that are not connected in the world because uh, financially it might not be uh, right things to do for them um, because they are in the suburban area and uh, far away from the local city. Uh, and about 3 billion people in the world uh, who don't have also access. So I just wish we put some of that money aside to get an um, um, area that is, doesn't have access to the broadband and, um, and to be covered. So that would have been a nice dream of mine to be filled in. But that's why I'm right now working on the University of New Hampshire Research Centers, known as the UNHPCOE. Uh, so um, that we're trying to actually use the um, uh, other lower cost technology and, and connect that, connect the people who are not on broadband. And, and, and you know, 30 million Americans not being connected to me is a significant number of the people. And uh, that should be really resolved. I'm hoping that based on pandemic and based on um, governments waking up as a result of how, how important the connectivity is, 
to come up with a solution to be able to connect the rest of uh, America, America to be the first country in the world that has 100% connection for all those people. Dick Dawson talks about this a lot on his blog, which is Pots and Pans. For anybody who doesn't follow it, it's a really good blog to talk about these types of issues, which you just talked about with people not having connectivity. Um, and he would argue, I think, that there's even more than 30 million. So I think the problem is even more acute than... Um, there are deserts within cities that people don't realize and that much of the industry is going to have to abandon copper very soon because the copper plant is aging out and just not, um, we actually saw this when I was working on Telepost Greenland, uh, that the copper plant was so old that you just couldn't do anything with it anymore. You just had to abandon it in place and think of other ways of getting people onto broadband. Um, so that's, a, that's an interesting, a lot of interesting area of work right there that you're involved in. You know, I don't know if I agree. Uh, Dawson's a good friend of mine. I know him very well. I don't know if I agree that coax is not working. Coax will always work and it's a good shielded materials. Uh, can you use over fiber? Yes. Can you do 5G wireless? Yes. Can you do so? Satellite, low orbit satellite? Yes. And all those coming together. I'm hoping the low orbit covered the entire world and we are done with this very soon. <laughs> but coax still has a life in it. Coax works very well for the last mile, the last few miles. It really becomes to be the rope. If, if my technology was working in 1987 over the coax of then, then the today's um, cable modem should have zero problem to work over existing um, coax. The challenge, I believe, is not that. You know, for example, uh, we have three misunderstandings. One is when we say uh, somebody's connected or not connected, uh, when the government did the survey, of the broadband, if you, they go to these uh, zip code, and if there's one person in the zip code had broadband connectivity, government called that zip code fully available for broadband, which is a false uh, combination. Unfortunately, the government cut that funding and, and didn't allow the real survey to go on to see how many American connected or not. That was one issue. The second problem was that the speed in which the different like Northern New Hampshire or West Virginia or Maine or Wyoming, or people stopped uh, communicating because real estate prices was getting impacted if you have a good broadband or low, uh, bad broadband. So people stopped really documenting what the real uh, true speeds are and the true performances are. And the third issue that happens is that certain companies walked away from certain states. Um, like Verizon walked away from Vermont and New Hampshire and the Maine and didn't want to spend the fibers in there. And so the local guys took it over and the local guys had a different issue to deal with. My, my general view is as a good American, uh, we want to have entire nation connected. We want a broadband connectivity over wireless, over coax, over the satellite, over uh, uh, UHF, VHF, over the airs, however you want to get it, every people person in the country should have the right to be connected. I'm 100% behind that. I get my technology free to the cable industry to work, uh, you know, for standardization, and I'm putting the rest, my rest of life into creating this technology for free for the people to use, because I believe the broadband connectivity is every citizen rights uh, to be connected and, um, and be able to have the rights to communicate and that. So we have the technology, we just need to have the will and some passionate people who, 
who really like to just see people connected and working and, and move it forward. And I think we'll hopefully we get that done in our nation very quickly. Any other historical points you want to make? Hysterical, sorry, historical points you want to make before we, uh, <laughs> before we wrap up? Because it seems like we've got pretty much covered the history in a, in a very interesting way. I think there is a couple things to mention. Um, what happened from 1980 to 1990 to 2000 and 2010 decades on this four decade, right? In 80s, we were able to get broadband proven and a broadband to work as a data communication. The question that I ask the people, do you believe data over broadband? Do you believe data over coax? Nobody did in 80s. So bang, we proved that. In 90s, uh, when I went to the venture guys to get money, they told me, Rujbe, you are a great guy. You're smart. You can do it. But we don't believe you're going to have 1 million people connected by end of 1999. So um, we're not going to find you. This is not going to be as big. By end of the second decade, we proved that I was wrong. They were right. I couldn't connect million. Was actually connected two million people together. So I could you build large size network at the highest speed? That was the second decade, which was very phenomenal. And the third decade, a standardization took over, and the price of the modem dropped so low to a thirty dollars uh, that became to be commodity. So that's a great uh, between the 2000 and 2010. Ubiquitous connectivity happens. And from 2010 to 2020, the world went after what we call high-risk speed channel boundings, you know, 100 megabits to gigabits connection, which is a great uh, area of the connectivity. But we left uh, about 30 million Americans behind by not getting connected, which we have to go back and really fill that in. So in a period of the 40 years, we brought a technology that used to be $20,000 to $30. We connected 4 billion people around the globe. Uh, we connected the, at the land of speed. Everybody's every home is there. Thanks God, before this pandemic happened, we had the broadband and the coax connectivities and uh, high speed, every homes, every facility that people could save lives and work in theirs. So the lesson we learned from the last four decades was that to do the right thing the right way for our nation, which is innovative and uh, creative, we really have to move forward with the, uh, having the uh, foresight to see what's required. In my view, open the standards right now for getting the car connected, that all the cars um, in our country and the universe have the same connectivity that they become to be part of a network infrastructures uh, from connected cars as just as important that we got the buildings connected. We need to get the reliability of, uh, and security of the networks to come up to the next level that every consumer is um, protected in that nature. So right now, today in Massachusetts, we have a ballot going on and the companies have spent $100 million for and against it. The question is, should the third party dealer have access to diagnostic in your car? Uh, yes or no? And then I won't bore you with the logic behind it uh, and uh, that people are fighting for it and people fighting against it. But, you know, universal secure open connectivities and a data world is really uh, required in order to get our uh, productivity and uh, get our generation to the next level. And so now that we have learned that, I think we need to get really back to the work and get this innovative country 
to create and, and lead the world with this type of connection. We're falling a bit behind on the 5G as a nation. I'm disappointed with that. We're falling a bit behind on the silicon development. I'm disappointed with that. So we should get the energy back and, and get back to innovation and do the type of good things that people of this uh, country, engineers in this country have done in 80s and 90s, which is now why during the pandemic, people are safe, can operate from their home. So I get off my soapbox. Yeah, actually, that's awesome. That's great to hear because, you know, hopefully people will listen to this and figure out what can I do? What can I, what part could I play in this and what role could I do to help um, understand and, and help people get this done? So I think it's actually awesome to talk about it. Um, in fact, we may want to schedule a hedge podcast at some point on this very topic, uh, just rather than leaving it at the end of this history of networking. So awesome. All right. Well, we'll wrap up there. Um, Ruzva, any place people get in touch with you, websites, blog posts, stuff like that? My email is Ruzva. My name is R-O-U-Z-B-E-H at yas.com. So uh, that's one way to get a hold of me. The, uh, the, my website in the UNH uh, is... Uh, unh.edu backslash broadband. So you can get to the BCOE, which is the Broadband Center of Excellence. We have significant amount of open knowledge on the wider space um, TV connections and all the other broadband connectivity and the business model for all the entrepreneurs who want to utilize that. And um, so the combination of two should help get the people get in touch with me. Donald, I think you are just still on Twitter, no blog or anything like that, right? Correct. Me, not you, Sharp at Twitter. All right. And I'm Russ White. You can find me at rule11.tech and you can find the whole history of networking series there and on Ripe Labs and whoever else decides to republish it because it is published under Creative Commons and anybody can just grab the files and put them wherever they like them. We just prefer that you give the whole interview and not little slices and dices so that people don't get taken out of context and stuff. So awesome. Well, thanks, Rusba, for coming on and we'll catch you next time on the History of Networking. Subscribe to the History of Networking on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.